Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre, based in St Melitus College, which is a community of people studying and teaching Christian theology here in the UK and around the world. Graham Tomlin, Mike Lloyd, and the occasional guest join me, Jane Williams, in discussing God, life, theology, in fact, just about anything. Well, hello and welcome back to GodPod, for those of you who are regular listeners to this uh, podcast. Um, and uh, if this is your first ever one, uh, it's wonderful to have you with us. Uh, my name is Graham Tomlin, and uh, I normally host these um, discussions. Normally, I have uh, my our, um, our home team, Jane Williams and Mike Lloyd, but sadly, they're not here today. But I do have two very good friends with me here today, and um, I'm delighted we're able to uh, have this particular GodPod because um, we have uh, James Mumford. Hello. And we have James Orr. Hello. And uh, James and James, this is going to get very confusing because I'll be saying James and both of them will be replying at the same time. But we'll try and work out some way of doing it. Um, uh, James Mumford is um, uh, someone I've known for many years now. He's been—he's um, a writer living in London at the moment. Uh, he's been working in the University of Virginia in the USA as an academic and um, uh, coming up with all kinds of interesting things that we'll be talking about today. And James Orr uh, is um, in Cambridge at the moment. He's a teaching associate in the on, in the philosophy of religion at the University of Cambridge and the Divinity Faculty there. So, um, uh, welcome to GodPod. Thank you. Great to be here. Oh, this is your first one, isn't it? It is, indeed. Never been on GodPod before? Never. But you've listened to one or two in the past? Absolutely. Yeah. I've been a listener from the very beginning. Oh, amazing. Very good. Anyway, um, it's it's great you're here. We were, and Just to reassure listeners, we have got a plate of biscuits in the middle. And actually funny little sort of chocolate That's twirly chocolate. things. And a Bible. And a Bible, yeah. That's just to reassure people, it's not just chocolate. It's also Bible too. Um, James, uh, so here we go. James Mumford. <laughs> it's going to get very confusing. Um, you've got a book coming out quite soon, and uh, it's something you've been thinking about for quite some time, both in your work in uh, in the states and here in the UK. Um, tell us what the title is, and tell us what the sort of themes are, and uh, basically what the book is about. Sure. Um the book is working title is um, Clowns to the Left, Jokers to the Right. Uh huh. Bit of cultural sort yeah. of reference there to a uh, song. Steeler's Wheel. Yeah. And it's about making moral choices and how we think about morality in an age of bitter political tribalism. And it was written in America, where I was an outsider observing a culture that I love, but a culture that is, you know, famously and increasingly polarized. And then coming back and seeing actually a lot of the culture wars um, back in um, my own country and feeling that we console ourselves here by thinking that, oh, it's an American phenomenon because we don't have um, gun issues or, mm. but actually realizing there's a lot of um, polarization here too, obviously on social issues. And I wanted to write on ethical and social issues. And so the idea was that there are these um, clusters or what I call package deals of positions that sometimes we're, tempt we're tempted to um, buy into or subscribe to so that we um, dislike President Trump, we, um, we think that uh, we should legalize um, marijuana, uh, we're an environmentalist and we've we thereby, by default, by buying into a package deal on this, in this case on the left, 
we think that um, it, it follows that we should legalize assisted dying. And I'm arguing in a critique both of the left and seeing the same thing on the right, that those things don't follow from each other and we need to um, blow apart the packages and think mm. about ethical issues on their own terms. Okay, so you're saying that there's a, these sort of issues cluster together in different positions and you almost got to kind of buy into one or the other and therefore see the other group as the enemy. Um, yeah, exactly. You, you don't see these, these issues in isolation from one another. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, okay, fascinating. And that grew out of your, because you did quite a bit of work on sort of the question of abortion and so on in the past as well. Uh, was that part of that discovery and is it working on that issue and uh, rights of life and euthanasia? And yeah, there was questions? quite a lot of bioethics going into it. I yeah. I think I saw two things um, in, in terms of working on um, the fraught issue of um, abortion. Uh, one was that uh, on the left it seemed that there was... Um, and and uh, an inability to reckon with some of the patterns of um, of thinking that were distinctly um, capitalist and distinctly um, uh, uh, referring to processes of advanced capitalism. For example, turning in the medical textbook and having the fetus, or what I call the new one, the prenatal human organism described as a product of conception. Yeah, okay. What sort of imagination do we have yeah. to inhabit yeah. to understand what's coming forth um, as being made in a particular way artificially and being described as a product? And so that seemed that yeah. there's a left-wing uh, critique of abortion that could be made. But on the other, on the other side, being in the States, I was, I was always um, befuddled by the fact that a pro-life conviction was so strong among, among American conservatives and, uh, and a, a large reason, reason that American conservatives and re Republicans voted for Donald Trump. Um, and you know, why was it that when it came to issues around gun control, that same convictions about promoting a culture of life seemed to go missing in action? And so there was, it's always been um, contentious and fraught across the political divide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And is that related to the kind of commodification of life, the kind of idea of seeing an, a, a, a fetus as a thing, a product, as opposed to a person? Is that at the heart of Yeah, that's this? that's much better way of saying it, yeah. yeah. The commodification is a category that um, the left has used powerfully to mm. critique um, certain ways in which human beings uh, treat and sure. think about yeah. other human yeah. beings and mm. and that could apply mm. in this case too. Mm. And do you see that on the right as well, that same commodification going on? Um, I see, I'm, the contradiction I'm more interested on the right is in, in terms of the relation to the gun issues. Yeah, okay. yeah. But I think yeah. there are clearly um, commodification issues that then bleed over because of yeah. the culture um, uh, that we live in. Sure. Um, yeah, okay. Yeah. James Orr this time. Mm. Um, <laughs> as, you, as you sort of hear that analysis and sort of look at um, the way in which sort of moral positions mm. and sort of political packages are, mm. are put together, do you recognise mm. some of that? Does that make some sense to you? Yes, it does. And um, what, what's so interesting, just thinking about the themes that um, James has been articulating, is um, trying to, this idea of a package deal is, I think, very, very attractive. And I think that's partly a function of the way democracies tend to be organized. And certainly it's the case, I think, in, in the UK, though a lot of the issues are, are less contentious here for, I think, various sort of technical reasons. Um, but 
they are real nevertheless, that sense of just a split down the middle. And if you're in one party, you've really got to sign up mm. to the package. And mm. there's just not much of a voice you're going to have in terms of representative mm. democracy if you part company with mm. your party on 10% of the issues. Mm. Now, I think in the UK, we've generally managed that differently from, in the, from uh, the, uh, the way it's been managed in the States in part because a lot of the contentious issues, so I think a lot of the, about the, the debate running up to the 1967 Abortion Act, have always been treated as um, uh, uh, no party whip has been applied. So that is to say they're, they're, they're conscience issues. And I think that's been quite a nice way for the UK to avoid quite a lot of the cultural wars that have been sort of tearing the, the states apart. So I think the Abortion Act, and when it, the, when it came through as a bill in '67, was by David initiated by David Steele as a private member. So it wasn't a, as it, it wasn't a party pushing it through, and therefore it wasn't associated with a party. And therefore, people have been able to sort of people who have very strong views on either side of the fence of the abortion issue have been able, in good conscience, to as it were vote for their political party without worrying about whether that you know, as it were, is, is supporting um, a policy stance on that sort of issue. And how does that relate to your, um, your coming at this as a kind of Christian academic? Because I mean, it's often struck me how in um, sort of political debate and you know, journalists and others try to always try to kind of pigeonhole Christians on one side or the other of that. You know, you're either left or you're right. Mm -hmm. uh, but actually very often Christian positions actually transcend that. And mm -hmm. Christians are often quite difficult to pigeonhole and, mm. and categorize because, mm. for example, you might find a Christian who is, you know, pro-Palestinian mm. on the um, in, in that particular issue, might mm. be quite conservative on issues of um, sort of sexuality and mm. gender, mm. might be economically quite sort of liberal and um, suspicious of capitalism mm. and so on. So, um, you know, and, you know, against uh, easy divorce and abortion. Mm. So in other words taking a whole set of positions which don't quite map onto mm. the left-right sort of map of, of, of political positions. And the problem mm. is that our society can't really yeah. cope with that mm -hmm. because of this package deal thing. I think it's worth always remembering in, in this context that the DNA of this left-right idea is in the French Revolution. That is to say, mm. if you were on the left, it meant that you were much more on the side of off with the king's head. If you're on the right, you're a little bit more, a little bit closer to the king, a bit more monarchist, as it were. Mm. And so that whole binary of left-right mm. comes, the, the cradle, as it were, of that binary, mm. is a moment in European history where atheism for the very first time has its first roar, as mm. it were. Mm. And, and, and the blood is really running through the streets mm. uh, in, in the name of a very crude kind of atheism. Yeah. Mm. And, and so if we're... Now, of course, that doesn't really affect the way we think about things these days. But it's worth remembering that it is uh, not, a, not it has no theological pedigree, mm. the left-right mm. spectrum. Quite the reverse, in fact. It emerges at a time of insurrection, a bloody insurrection against mm. the church. Before that, you didn't have it in sort of medieval political um, yeah. configurations of church and state relationships. You didn't really have a sort of left-right. Once there was no left and right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that um, what's really important as well, following on for that, is the contingency in which different issues, um, social and moral issues, are brought and within um, the realm and the Leban's realm of, of political party interests. 
and they are become politicized. And that can happen in random um, reasons for reasons of state, that these packages aren't unified ways of thinking, but they're the amalgam of and accretions of views over time that have been brought together. And so it's not a surprise that um, a program of thinking um, a way of trying to be consistent, that which theology is, um, which is in line with first principles, will be out of sorts with, oh. and again, oh. um, two systems of thought that are moving and have merged and have been so radically contingent. Mm -hmm. It's interesting how I think this, the, the analysis you're, you're making, which is trying to transcend the, the left-right divide and actually say that they're not as fixed and, you know, um, Primer, you know, primaries. We think they are. It's, it's being echoed in a number of other places, isn't it? But I've been reading recently that um, middle book by Patrick Deneen. Have you seen it? Mm -hmm. Which is, um, you know, why liberalism uh, failed. <clears throat> and, um, and 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 his argument basically is that the the left right divide is basically uh, both have, both have the same goals, which is the autonomous individual freed from mm -hmm. the restrictions of place and time and family and culture and tradition and custom. Uh, free to choose their own goal in life. It's all about the, mm. the control of nature. Uh, it's just that one side thinks the market can deliver that, mm. and the other side thinks the state mm. can deliver that. Mm. Um, and there's a big argument of is it market or state, and you know, and that's going to have it is. But essentially, underneath it, this, the same agenda is, is at play. So he's also trying to kind of you know undermine and say actually this 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 whole kind of left right mm. polarized mm. Um, political mm. sort of picture we have is quite. It's actually very contingent, and, and it's, it's really quite recent, as you were pointing out. Yeah. Um, yes, I, I think he, he, he's tapping into, in that, in that book, one of the most interesting questions in, in, of, of the modern age, which is, was liberalism always doomed to fail? Mm. Is there something in the very DNA of liberalism mm. that tends towards yep. the sorts of um, upheavals that we've been witnessing sure. in, yep. in recent years? Yep. Um, those who disagree with him are saying no it's just that illiberal ideologies have mm. crept in yep. and yep. have as it were spoilt you know ruined yep. the party yep. but I think that it is a very very interesting mm. debate and what's so interesting about it is it's not a debate about left and right yep. it's a debate about the very system that produced yep. left and right yep. um, and I think now he, 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 he has a, a particular a particular take on that and I think he's a bit more um, pessimistic about the power of the markets mm. in particular mm. to achieve genuine freedom. Mm. Um, I think if you think of the extraordinary advances in China and in India yep. mm. as a result of the liberalization of um, markets, particularly in, in among the poorest, we've seen extraordinary improvements mm. in levels, in reductions in levels of absolute poverty. Mm. But I think he, he, his analysis is very profound and, and important. Mm. Um, and profoundly theological. It's as if it took a theological mind yeah. Yeah. to see, to be able to step outside the binary yeah. and and advance mm. that critique. Yeah. But is, is there a theological component to your analysis, James Mumford? This is <laughs> no. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. It's um, my thinking is informed by having studied a lot of theology, but what I'm actually trying to do in this book is different, and yeah. it's trying to identify values that are there on the left and on the right, mm. and find moments of affirmation, mm. where saying 
that there are certain values I find compelling mm. because I think that those values... Mean values on both sides? On both sides, okay, yeah. yeah. Do you give us uh, an example of that? Um, yeah, I think the value of a concern for the marginalised and a concern and to protect the vulnerable mm. on the left is something that resonates and taps into something very deep. And I think that we see that value expressed in a position such as in pensions policy around the turn of the 20th century where there was this great concern from the Fabians that, um, that as a result of industrialization older people would be left high and dry and that the state needed to do something to structurally um, support and be there and to stop the marginalization of the, of the poorest. However, when that value comes to another debate, such as uh, what, what we're talking about now and what the states have been talking about with the legalization of assisted dying, with California now and um, Colorado joining Oregon and Canada um, in, assist, in legalizing assisted suicide and here holding out against that, in my view, that same value of a concern for the marginalized and a protection of the vulnerable, um, that same left-wing value is ignored rather than expressed. And it's ignored because those who would be made vulnerable in such a situation, in my view, would be those older people who feel already a pressure to relieve society of the burden they feel they've become. Mm -hmm. And a concern for the vulnerable means, and an understanding of how subtly coercion works, mm. means that if you are going to be left-wing and harbour this value of protection for the vulnerable, you need to oppose assisted dying. Mm. So that's the way this okay. sort of argument yeah. works. Yeah, yeah. And so do you, do you, at the end of the book, are you proposing a kind of a, a different paradigm from the left-right one? Um, are you proposing a sort of set of values that somehow emerge underneath those which actually do provide a kind of political agenda or a or a sort of a set of um, of principles values that can guide sort of moral deliberation and political life is that what you do yeah it's not through at the end of the book it's throughout okay. taking yeah. a view and yeah. being giving substantive views on why I am pro-life mm. and why I think um, that that uh, attunes with the good why it aligns with goodness why it's, um, it is getting it right and understanding reality mm. is to recognize the personhood of yeah. the unborn. And I'm taking saying that we should look at these issues not because they belong to packages, but because we think about them on their own terms. Yeah, yeah. that's very helpful. Mm. And James, turn to James, oh, mm. this time. Mm. It feels very odd calling people by their full names every time. <laughs> um, we should have called you something else for the sake of this. Bob discussion, Bob or something exactly. Um, <clears throat> I mean, you, you've been working on something in the area of sort of natural theology. I don't know whether yes. it has any connection. I'm looking for some mm. sort of nice neat mm. segue mm. between one and the other. Yeah. Um, but you know, you've been thinking about issues of um, yeah. uh, of again, sort of intellectual history and mm -hmm. how uh, how we think about the laws of nature, yeah. how we think about mm -hmm. those things that underlie our mm -hmm. sort of convictions mm -hmm. about life, which mm -hmm. I guess are sort of themes that. Yeah. Um, the mm. other James is talking about as well. Absolutely. I mean, well, sort of by way of segue, I suppose one, one one often talks about, I suppose, in the philosophy of science about the laws of nature, and in science itself, we talk about the laws of nature. But in, in um, 
the area of ethics and political philosophy, we often talk about natural law, mm. which is a different thing. Natural law is <coughs> what philosophers and theologians are, are talking about when they're talking about the idea that there exists not just a natural world, but also a natural world that is somehow ordered towards the good, that is, to use the technical word, normative. Um, and that is a very interesting, that's a very sort of contested question when it comes to intellectual traditions that are committed to a text, a sacred text, what they say called positive revelation. And the, and the worry has always been, in, certainly in the three Abrahamic monotheistic traditions, how does that relationship work between the world and the reality, natural and normative, that God has created, and the specific things he's revealed about himself and the specific prescriptions for the ethical life that he's revealed through a particular sacred text. Mm. Um, so I'm interested in, in, in both natural law and, and in the laws of nature, so my doctoral work was um, looking particularly at the laws of nature and began with a puzzle. And the puzzle was, why is it that this idea of laws of nature is the jewel in the crown of the natural sciences? Because we tend to be told that the natural sciences have displaced religion. Now that we live in a scientific era, we don't need to worry about theology. That's from a bygone era of naivety and naivete and faith and irrationality and so on. So why has this idea lingered, and not just lingered, but it's still absolutely central, the idea... It's the idea of the laws of nature. That's right, yeah. that, that, that nature's ordered. <clears throat> As being um, primal and... They can't seem to get rid of it. Into, yeah, sure, yeah. So that, that, I developed that thought, and I began to look at some of the philosophical arguments that are advanced in Anglo-American analytic philosophy, as it's called, for what a law of nature might be because I thought well it's got to be a metaphor because none of these none of these people really believe that there is a God and they're certainly not signed up to the doctrine of creation mm. so what's going and on this is the idea of God as a maker of laws yes who, God God is yeah. the source of the orderliness and regularity yeah. and, the, yeah. and, the, and the, the, the patterned character of mm. the natural world which is not an idea that comes naturally to human beings. Mm. In, in, that is, this is, goes back to this, this famous um, guy called Joseph Needham, who uh, wrote an enormous, one, one of the first European scholars to open up the study of Sinology, the study of China. Mm. And mm. he had this question called the Needham question. And the Needham question was, how is it that this Chinese civilization that was so much more advanced than Northwestern mm the northwestern rim of Eurasia, mm. um, and generated so many interesting discoveries and inventions, never produced an Isaac Newton, mm. never produced a Charles Darwin, never produced a figure who had a kind of comprehensive mm. picture of reality in scientific terms. They invented gunpowder, they invented all sorts mm. of interesting sort of mm. pockets of discovery, but none of that sort of grand unified vision of, of, of reality. And Needham's answer, though I don't think he was a Christian uh, or, or, or a, a monotheist, was that the, the, the main difference he could see in the sort of flow of intellectual ideas was this commitment to the idea that reality was brought into being by a supremely rational 
being, and therefore that it's like a text that's legible. You can read, you can trust its intelligibility, and you could have a guess, a at a have a go at a grand hypothesis, and it might work. So you couldn't have had those big scientific visions without some sort of sense of the orderliness of the world, which Stability. depends upon yes. the idea of, a, of an order giver. Yes, and Needham's point after, yeah. I mean, I think he wrote about 20 volumes, his sort of history of Chinese mm. thought and, and history, was, was actually, as a matter of fact, this probably is the best explanation for yeah. why you yeah. have this extraordinarily sophisticated mm. civilization mm. that nevertheless didn't produce a Copernicus or a yeah. Galileo or, yeah. or, or a Newton. Yeah. It didn't have that underlying yeah. idea of... Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I suppose the question that comes to me that I was on, on both sides of this discussion is, is the question of how you make ethical choices and what, what the grounds of those are. Because I guess, James Mumford, this is, um, your critique is that, you know, we, we, we tend to make ethical choices depending on whether you're left or right, and that detect, dictates the sort of position you take on different ethical um, issues, and you're trying to question that and, and, and have a, a different way of, of understanding that, James, or this time. Um, you're going behind the idea of natural law, uh, this sort of assumption that there are the laws of nature to, to, to the, the, the implication of that points to a, um, a kind of divine order behind that. And I suppose it leads into the question of, of to what extent religious faith, belief in God, is somehow necessary to make good ethical choices or not? Because, mm. of course, there are many voices who mm. want to say you don't really need religion to make ethical mm. choices. Mm. Um, mm. And that's part of a lot of the sort of atheist case mm. these days. You don't really need God to make good choices. Mm. Um, you can mm. do that without a religious framework at mm. all. Mm. But how would you respond to that sort of position? Do you, do you, do you, do you feel that's right? Is, mm. it, is it right that you can make um, perfectly good ethical choices without any need to mm -hmm. recourse to the idea of God? Mm. Yes, I, I, just chipping in here, I, I think it, um, it's plainly the case that people can behave themselves very well, in fact be um, saints almost. You, you, there are secular saints who would entirely reject the existence of some sort of under, underlying ground of goodness that their saintly actions are, are, are rooted in. I don't think that's the, the theological claim or, or, or the con contention, it, mm. although it's often mist mistaken for that. Mm. Uh, it, it's not, can we be good without God? But it's, can we coherently be good without God? That is to mm. say, can we give an ultimate reason for why we can call an action good? Mm. Um, is there some sort of underlying story to be told? And clearly in the rough and tumble of everyday life, that is, those are not the sorts of questions that that, that, that arise. But when a figure comes along who says, I just reject all of this completely, a, a, a sort of Nietzsche type mm. figure who comes along, writes mm. beyond good and evil, mm. and says, well, why should I buy into all of this? In fact, I think your system of being good and uh, uh, doing right and doing wrong is an invention of Christianity mm. to keep in check the, the superman. Mm. Um, or what do you do when a, a Marx figure comes along and says, well, no, this is just a, a comfort blanket religion mm. to try that the, the, the wealthy and the powerful use to keep in check the, the weak. Mm. Now, either one of those criticisms is right or they're both wrong. <laughs> yeah. One of them is saying it's a weapon of the weak, the other is a weapon. But you get the idea, and, and it's at that point that 
the theologian should step in, the philosopher should step in and say, well, we have to therefore ask, do we have an answer to a Nietzsche? Yeah, yeah I, I think moral choices and moral decisions presuppose readings of the world, which goes back to James's point on natural law, mm. takes on reality, uh, takes on what is the case and what isn't the case, what constitutes a person that we treat as an end in herself and not only as a means, what, um, what kind of an action um, is this in front in is this in front of us and when we get down to ultimate questions it does bottom out um, often at whether or not you you how you think about value and how you think about whether value is conferred by the will and whether we we invent right and wrong or whether and those are four social systems which enable us to get by as groups of people, as uh, nations on different levels, or whether, um, and I think people who don't have faith are still gripped by this idea that the value that we ascribe to actions or to persons or to individuals that, by which we see them as persons um, is is beyond us, is, is, out, is out beyond us that we that we correspond to and that we haven't made up de novo from scratch and therefore can deconstruct by the same logic that we constructed it in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. But I guess the, the other aspect that comes into this is, is the question of purpose or teleology, again, to use the technical term, isn't it? That, mm. that <clears throat> I guess you could say a lot of the the sort of secular agenda, liberal mm. agenda, it mm. is in some ways to kind of eliminate teleology, or at least to have any mm. s sense there is a common goal for human beings mm. or human life, mm. and actually to relegate that to the level of the individual. Yeah. So, you know, I choose what my, my dream is, and I sort of, yeah. the, the, um, mm. the only imperative of modern life is to acquire all the means mm. needed, the money, the friends, the influence, the education, in order to achieve my goal. Mm. But my, my goal is enti entirely self-chosen. Mm self-defined mm. because there is no common mm. idea of what it what you know the goal of a human being is and um I, it's always trying to struck me that you know ethics is very closely linked to purpose because you know how you use a thing yeah. it depends on what you think the thing that thing is for mm. so you know if you use a violin to fry an egg mm. um it's not a very good use of a violin because a violin was made to produce good mm -hmm. music um yeah. And again, that question of what are human beings for, that seems to be a crucial question, and one on which Christian faith, religious traditions have quite yeah. clear and almost universal answers, not, not eliminating mm. <coughs> individuality, but having a sense of, we, we, we have a sense of what human beings are for, which, is, which actually gives a, a sort of focus to the, um, to the way in which we organize society, in which we make sort of choices, we make choices in the light of that prior assumption of what human beings are for, which you can't really do if you've eliminated any common sense of teleology yeah. or purpose yeah. uh, at all. Yeah. One of the greatest works of ethics ever written is Aristotle's mm. Nicomachean Ethics, mm. and he opens that with, in the first book by advancing exactly that, that idea. Mm. Mm. Um, what are human beings for? Yeah. Before we can work out how can we live well, mm. we need to first answer the question, who are we? Um, we can say of an acorn that a 
good acorn is an acorn that turns into an oak tree, mm. or a good violin is a violin that mm. sounds great when you're playing a beautiful concerto, mm. and a good knife is a knife that cuts cleanly. So mm. what is it that we do? Mm. What kinds of beings are we? Mm. Now he developed a very interesting answer to that question, roughly, we don't need to go into it now, but roughly along the lines that, well, we are, what sets us apart is that we are reasoning animals. We think about things, we have a desire to understand the world. Uh, and a, de a desire in part to understand the purpose of the world. Now, his idea of what a flourishing human being consisted in was pretty odd and parochial. It was effectively a pretty well-to-do Athenian gent with a big house, uh, uh, wives who kept themselves to themselves, and plenty of slaves. It wasn't until Aquinas in the 1200s who suddenly gets a copy of the Nicomachean Ethics translated for the first time into Latin, it'd been lost for hundreds of years before, who understood that there was a way of baptizing Aristotle mm. as a way of joining the Christian answer to the question, what are we for, to that basic structure of this is how we live a flourishing life and these are the virtues and habits yep. that we cultivate. And his answer, Aquinas is very, very simple, was the chief end of human beings is to be in the presence of God. Mm. That is to say, the chief end is going to uh, is attainable only after biological death. Mm. And what counts as a right action and what counts as a wrong action mm. is whether or not that action leads you closer to that point or mm. further away from it. Mm. Yeah, I think strangely, if you if you were to ask that question of Jesus, um, you would go back to his. You know, the, the question, you know, what is the purpose of human life? What is the greatest mm. commandment? It is to love God and to love your neighbor. And if that is fundamentally what human life is about, is to become the kind of person capable of love for God and capable of love for your neighbor, that then begins to dictate ethical choices. Whereas if you go to Nietzsche, for example, as you, you, you raised, and, um, and you ask that question, what is the purpose of human life? What is the purpose of the agenda of Nietzsche? Well, yes, there is an individualizing focus there, but a lot of it comes down to the will to power, doesn't it? It's actually about the kind of the kind of liberation of those sort of primal urges that, that that are sort of held in check by the artificial constraints of religion to allow you know the um, the Superman that you were mentioned to to kind of appear and to sort of and it's a it's a vision of domination and, and power which actually really when you think about it you really wouldn't want to live in. And so that question of what really makes human beings flourish uh, is, is unavoidable. So that question of purpose seems to be quite crucial to the sort of um, these questions of what um, ethical choices mm -hmm. are made and how we make them. And um, may go back to your um, point, James Mumford, about um, uh, about how you know we, we do need to get beyond the kind of packaging of nice, neat, you know, sort of moral positions into something that is more reflective and and um, goes deeper than that into the kind of values that you've been speaking of. Mm -hmm. Great. Go on. Um, one last one last comment from either of you, just to round off our discussion. Well, it's it's, it's worth pointing out that um, the discussion we've been having, both in the context of James's work, that the natural law, this idea of, of of the good, the good person, the good society, and sort of work that I've been doing in terms of, kind of the, the the orderliness of physical reality is, it's all in, encoded in in the New Testament. I mean, I'm thinking particularly of the opening of the book of Romans, Romans 1, where mm. Paul talks very clearly about uh, the way in which God's character mm. is disclosed mm. and revealed through the things that he has made, independently of the 
sacred text that reveals other things about him. Mm-hmm. And then in the following chapter, in, in um, chapter 2, he, he's very clear that, 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 that the Gentiles, uh, what does he say, um, they, they don't have the law, that is to say they don't have the law of, of, of Moses, but they do by nature things required by the law. They're a law for themselves even though they don't have the law because the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Mm-hmm. So there is that idea that it, what belongs to us as hu- human beings is is that orientation towards the good, an orientation towards mm. God as the good. Mm. Thank you. Last, yeah, last point. I think it's interesting that people can't get away from moral questions. And a lot of the books that have been written at the moment about political tribalism try and get away from those questions, which uh, and therefore don't resonate with people. Because what's at stake in the culture wars our questions of purpose and our questions of values and our questions of moral dilemmas people face. Mm. And so I think the task is to identify those values which are which are compelling and that are right, um, but to see them on, on both sides and to achieve a kind of consistency um, across um, a, across the realm of value. And I think that the, the church has always been well placed to do that. Thank you, James and James, for a fascinating discussion. It's been really good to uh, chew over those issues. And um, for people who might want to get hold of the uh, both of your books, um, James, you want to tell us about your book and its title and publishers and date and everything else? Yeah, it's going to be brought out by Bloomsbury. Um, not quite sure of the date yet. I have to write it first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the title? Uh, I think the working title is Clowns to the re- Left, Jokers to the Right. That's James Mumford. And James Orr? And my book is called The Mind of God and the Works of Nature. It's coming out, I think, the first half of February, available on Amazon and all good bookshops near you, I'm sure. Brilliant. Good. Well, we look forward to both of those when they, when they emerge. And again, thank you so much for joining us on GodPod. And uh, for those of you uh, listening, thank you for being with us. And uh, we'll be back with another one before too long. So uh, goodbye from all of us. Thank you for having us. Goodbye. That was GodPod, a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try.